denarius was kind of the commonly agreed upon wage. You worked a full day, you got one denarius. Okay, so they agreed, you work for me all day, you get a denarius. He sent them into his vineyard, verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So they got a full day's pay for working for one hour. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. And I put the, that's, we're reading from the ESV. The NIV says, I am not being unfair to you, because that's the complaint, right? You're not being fair. So he's saying, I'm not being unfair to you. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I kind of remember 6 a.m. we had a little agreement. You work the full day. For a denarius. You got your denarius. What's the problem here? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And now here's, here's where it all comes together. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, when I uh, teach young students how to interpret a parable, here's the lesson for interpreting a parable. Figure out the main point. So you got all these different people being hired at different times, and then you got payday, and you got uh, the same amount being given to the guy who only worked an hour. But sum it all up, what's the moral of the story? What is the lesson? Well, let me, uh, let me try to sum it up in a sentence. Treating one person with justice and another with grace is not unjust. Okay, the, the word just and the word fair can be interchanged. Treating one person with justice and another person with grace is not unfair. Or let me, let me try it another way. Just because one person gets grace doesn't mean 
everybody deserves grace. Or let's put it this way. If grace is something God owes us, it's no longer grace because grace, by definition, can't be owed. If we think God owes us grace, it's no longer grace because grace, by definition, is undeserved. It can't be owed. One more shot. Grace is undeserved favor. So grumbling when you don't get it shows you think you deserve it. You get that? Grace is undeserved. So if you grumble like these guys when you don't get it or somebody else gets it, then you have a messed up view of what grace is. This parable is going to test whether we really understand the concept of justice and grace. All right? Most of us have those two concepts confused. So let's let's define those two concepts. First of all, justice you don't want to go to God and say, give me, treat me with justice. Okay? Justice is getting what you deserve according to God's law. God's law says, here's my standard, keep it perfectly or you will be punished. Justice has no mercy. Justice has no grace. Justice is all law. Justice is God's perfect standard. Grace, on the other hand is undeserved favor from God. Okay? Now, um, let me divide the parable into two points. You don't get three points with the same letter today, or we'd be here till at least the third playoff game today. Um, There's only two, I know. But two points, they don't even begin with the same letter. Or maybe they do. Oh, they actually do begin with the same letter. Okay? All right, so here's here's point number one. Beware of demanding what you deserve. Point number one. Beware of demanding from God what you deserve. Point number two. Beware when you compare. Right? Beware of demanding what you think you deserve. Two, beware when you compare. So let's take a look at the first one. Beware of demanding what you deserve. Now, I've um, got to tell you that I am now going to cheat and basically preach to you one chapter from R.C. Sproul's classic book, The Holiness of God. Okay. Uh, by the way, um, if you haven't read this book, this is required reading. As, as I heard one person kind of um, crassly say, uh, it's, t- it's time to take off the diapers and put on the big boy pants, right? <laughs> if you want to put on the big boy pants, you've got to read R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God and let it challenge you and change your view of the holiness of this God we serve, right? Or you can just eat pablum. But um, there's a chapter in here called 
holy justice. And I am glad that when I was just a little bitty Christian, I, I heard R.C. Sproul preach through this series. Changed my view. Changed my, my uh, concept of God. And uh, now in this book, in this chapter on holy justice, he talks about three incidents in the Bible that are kind of hard to, to come to grips with. Because in all three of them, people end up dying. And it seems rather trivial, rather unfair of God. So um, let's take a look at, at these three incidents. One of them has to do with uh, Aaron's sons. Now remember, God uses Moses to deliver the people of Israel from uh, Egypt. And they uh, flee from Pharaoh. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh gets destroyed and they're in the desert. And God appoints Moses' brother, Aaron, to be the first high priest. And he gives all these regulations of how to worship him, build a temple, and have the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, you're to, to have the priest dress a certain way. And they're to, to perform certain act, uh, sacrifices with certain animals. Other animals you weren't to sacrifice. Very clearly, God says, I am a holy God and I am to be worshipped in a certain way. Now, uh, Aaron is the high priest and his two oldest sons... Nadab and Abihu uh, are the priests right under him. Now, here's what happens in Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, so that's a, something that held fire, right? and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, now here's the, the key, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, um, people want to speculate. What, what was going on here? What, what is the unauthorized fire? We don't know. Um, could have been that God said, you're to put certain kinds of incense in there, and they came up with a better plan, better smelling incense. Or, later on in the chapter, when, when God speaks to Aaron, he says, you're not to drink fermented drink, some people think they went and did the temple service drunk or having drunk alcohol. Um, bottom line, all we know is this. God said do it this way. They said we have a better way to do it, to worship God. Okay. Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. <laughs> you know? Imagine we're up here doing our worship service and we come up with a, a better way to worship God than he has said in his Bible. And we come up with some innovative way to do it. And fire comes down from heaven and scorches Pastor Todd. Because <laughs> who would be here to preach if it was? No, no. Um, what would you think? Wouldn't you say, but we were trying to worship you, Lord? And it goes on. Now, now you would think, poor Aaron. His sons are dead. They're burnt to a crisp. So what does God say to Aaron through Moses? Right here. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be set apart. And before all the people, I will be glorified. 
and Aaron held his peace. Basically, God is saying, they did not treat me as holy, so I killed them on the spot. And Aaron wants to say something, but he doesn't say something. Now, wouldn't you think that the least Aaron would want to do is cry, wail, that he had lost his sons? But, by the way, here's what the ESV study note says. The offense lies in their doing it their own way instead of in a way authorized by the Lord. And as a result, they were instantly killed. The point of the story is that God will not allow his holiness to be violated. Just a a warning about how we worship God here. There's always in the church those who say, oh, we want to reach the new generation. Let's be trendy. Let's come up with some new innovative ways ways to do it. And then there are always the traditionalists. No, let's do it the old way. How about, rather than let's do it the way we've always done it and let's do it new and trendy, how about let's do it the way God wants to be worshipped. Let's be in the word seeking him to see how we're to worship him, not coming up with our own clever ideas. So they came up with their own clever idea. They're dead. Aaron wants to cry, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and uh, Ithmar, those are the two younger sons, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. Don't mourn. Don't mess up your hair. Don't rip your clothes. My holiness is far more important than you crying over your dead boys right there. I know some of you want to say, this is unfair. This seems unfair. Hold hold your tongue. Like Aaron, hold your tongue, okay? Let's move on to another incident. Um, King David became king before he was in Jerusalem. And... um, They didn't have a temple. They had a tabernacle. And they fought the Philistines. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the gold box that's in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And... um, Sounds bad. Sounds really bad. Okay. Um, They captured the Ark of the Covenant. And... What God did was he said, I want the ark to go back to the Israelites, so he gave the Philistines hemorrhoids. Really, that's what the text says. It says tumors, but when you look at the the word, it's really hemorrhoids. So, steal somebody's holy articles, and you may have hemorrhoids. Okay. So, the uh, Philistines say, let's get rid of this ark. And they put it on an ox cart. And put a new ox in front, and they go, get out of here. And the thing takes it back to uh, a town in Israel. And the Israelites are, yes, we're going to bring the ark back to Shiloh. And um, David says, this is a day to celebrate. Let's get the worship band out. And we're going to have a parade, and we're going to hoop and holler. We're going to put the Pentecostals to shame, all right? We are going to have us a worship parade. So um, here's what happens. They, uh, 
They liked this idea that the Philistines came up with, transport the ark on this ox cart. Because the way God told them to do it was there were little rings on the corners of, of the four corners of the ark, and they were to put poles through these loops. And four priests would have to carry the ark because God said something about the ark being holy and you shouldn't touch it and humans shouldn't just get too casual with the ark. But they came up with a better idea from the Philistines. Put it on the ox cart and let the ox do the work. All right? So here's the parade and here's what happens. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Aminadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So Ahio is in front, and you got Uzzah in the back just to make sure nothing falls off the, ark, off the cart. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I mean, they were, they were just all the loud instruments you can think of. Nothing electric, though, because that's unholy. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Oxen stumbles, cart teeters, looks like the, the, the ark's going to fall in the mud. He steadies it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. Sounds like David's like one of these guys in line to get paid. That seems unfair. Right? So we got two guys worshiping God, struck dead by God. Now, third incident, and take you to the New Testament. New Testament church is formed. Peter preaches. 3,000 get saved, get baptized. They start gathering together. Uh, they, they praise God. They worship God. In fact, they start even selling their land and their property because there's poor people amongst them. And they say, we can't have that. So they sell uh, their houses and their land, and they give to the poor. Now, there is uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they announced to the church, hey, got a piece of land that we're going to sell. We're going to give all the money to the church. And they all went, oh, that's great. These guys are holy. Oh. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell. And they got the money in hand. And they go, that's a lot of money to give away. <laughs> um, let's just keep about half of it. Nobody will know. And we'll give the money to the church. So we get, we get half the money ourselves, and we get the applause of man. So they give the money, and Peter says, uh, hold on. How much money did you really make? Because God told him that they were lying. Now, this is just Ananias. Sapphira's out. The wife is out. She's not in the worship service. But uh, here's what happens. Ananias lies to him. And says, yeah, uh, I gave you the full amount. We got X amount, and here it is. And he lied. You've not lied to men, 
but to God. This is Peter talking. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, Sapphira, she comes in about an hour later and she goes, Oh, Ananias, where are you? And Peter says, Hey, uh, by the way, how much did you get for the land? And she lies too. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So they started the first church graveyard right there. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, some interesting observations. All of these people are the people of God. These are not Ninevites worshiping a false god. These are not Baal worshipers. These are worshipers of the true God. You got priests, you got Levites, you got big church donors. All in the middle of an act of worship. And all of the sins, relatively small, wouldn't you say? These aren't rapists. They didn't commit genocide. These were not Hitlers. These were people who just did it a little differently. God strikes them dead. And a lot of of people throughout church history have said, we don't know what to make of this. Seems unfair. Well, let's try to put some perspective on this. Even though they were minor sins compared to murder and rape and so forth, they still sinned. Now, let me... uh, let me quote Sproul. Okay. Um, and he, he tells a story about a trucker who, I forget what state, let's see, Maryland. He was in Maryland. And um, he was pulled over and he was drunk. And he started swearing at the cop. So the cop threw the book at him. He went to court and he started swearing at the judge. And the judge gave him a fine of $100 and 30 days in jail. And he continued to swear at him. And the judge wanted to find him more, but he couldn't figure out what to do. And then he found an old antiquated law on the Maryland books against public blasphemy, against swearing in public. So he fined him another $100 and another 30 days in jail. Time magazine heard about this, and they were furious. Not for the... 30 days and $100 for the drunkenness, but for something as trivial as using God's name in vain, 30 days in jail and another $100. Now, Sproul writes this. Evidently, the news editor was not upset about the penalties imposed for drunken disorderly conduct. It was the punishment for blasphemy he couldn't handle. This is in strong contrast to the law code God established in Israel. The truck driver could rejoice that he wasn't arrested by Aaron. In the Old Testament, the best lawyer in Israel couldn't get his client 100 bucks 
uh, for public blasphemy, get him off on a, a hundred bucks for blasphemy. The question we face is, what is worse, creating a public disturbance by getting drunk or publicly insulting the dignity of a holy God? The news editor gave his answer. God gives a different one. If the Old Testament laws were in effect today, every television network executive would have long ago been executed. We cannot deny that the New Testament seems to reduce the number of capital offenses. By comparison, the Old Testament seems radically severe. So in the Old Testament, here's what would get you stoned. Curse your parents. I like that. (laughs) Idolatry. Blasphemy. Sabbath violation. Watch the NFL on Sunday. Or actually Saturday it would have been. Get you killed. Unlawful divorce. Homosexuality. False prophecy. You know, God really spoke to me. Really? God God spoke to you? What did he say? Uh, Well, I... I'm very sure God said this to me. So when we start saying, rather than this is my opinion, but we want to put the force of God behind it, and it doesn't come true, boom, you deserve to be stoned. Bearing false witness. All these things could get you stoned. But using God's name in vain could get you stoned in the Old Testament. New Testament, no. He says, what we fail to remember, however, is that the Old Testament list represents a massive reduction in capital crimes from the original list. The Old Testament code represents a bending over backwards of divine patience and forbearance. The Old Testament law is one of astonishing grace. How so? To make sense out of my strange words, we must go back to the beginning, to the original rules of the universe. What was the penalty for sin in the original created order? The soul who sins is the one who will die. In creation, all sin is is deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital offense. The task that is given to mankind in creation is to bear witness to the holiness of God and be his image bearers. Your job is to reflect to the world who God is by your behavior, by your words. Okay? God put Adam and Eve on probation and said, if you sin, you will die. Sin brings the loss of the gift of life. The right to life is forfeited when you sin. Once people sin, they forfeit any claim on God to human existence. Now the big question. When was the penalty for sin to be meted out in creation? Was the penalty stated like this? If you sin, then someday you might die? No, the penalty for sin was clearly stated by God. When you eat of it, you will surely die. In creation, the penalty for sin was not only death, but instant death. Death that very day. Death as swift as it fell on Nadab and Abihu. Death as sudden as it wiped out Uzzah. Death as quickly as it befell Ananias and Sapphira. The day that you sin, you will surely die. Die. In other words, before we get too huffy at God and say, that's unfair, wasn't that the original agreement? The day you sin is the day you deserve to be struck down like these people and die. Don't be too quick 
to accuse God of being unfair when he chooses to give justice and not grace. Sproul ends the chapter this way. Since it is our tendency to take grace for granted, my guess is that God found it necessary from time to time to remind Israel that grace must never be assumed. On rare but dramatic occasions, he showed the dreadful power of his justice. He killed Nadab and Abihu. He killed Uzzah. The command, uh, he commanded the slaughter of the Canaanites. It is as if, as if he were saying, be careful While you enjoy the benefits of my grace, don't forget my justice. Don't forget the gravity of sin. Remember, I am holy. Sproul tells, gives a great story. He was a teacher in a Christian college. He said, it was the fall semester, first day of class. He had 250 students. And he said, all right, there's three term papers in this class. First one's due on the last day of September. Second one's due the last day of October. Third one's due on the last day of November. Anybody late, you get an automatic F. Do you understand? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. First due date comes out of 250 students. 225 turn them in. And uh, 25 comes slithering up to him. Oh, professor, we mismanaged our time. We're freshmen. We don't know anything about time. Please give us an extension. He says, all right. Don't let it happen again, but I'll give you an extension. Second due date comes. Last day of October. 200 students turn in their paper on time, and now 50 are late. See, the word got out, he's a softy. He took them late. It's November, last day of November. 150 turn in their papers on time. 100 say, yeah, we'll get it to you. And he becomes mad. Pulls out his grade book and he says, Johnson, where's your paper? I don't have it, sir. F. Dirking, where's your paper? Don't have it, sir. F. All of a sudden they start to grumble. That's unfair. He says, oh, fair. You want what's fair. Okay. I remember, Durking, that the last time the paper was due, you were late also. So you want what's fair? F, F. And suddenly everybody began to realize they were misunderstanding, they were taking for granted what grace was. They were taking grace for granted, and the minute justice was introduced, they thought it was unfair. Now, here's the point. Anything short of you being struck down dead immediately and being sent to hell for eternity is pure grace. Anything short of you already having been struck down the first moment you sinned and dying and going to hell, anything short of that is pure grace. We swim in an ocean of grace. And you know what we do? We have the audacity to grumble and complain about life being unfair. How dare us? 
Have you complained this week about anything? You complain? <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> now, I'm talking to myself here, too. Because you know what I deserve? Instant death and eternal damnation. If we really understood this, it would have to radically change us. Actually, the one thing that leads us to the fatal mistake of demanding God be fair with us is the fact that we're swimming in grace. But there's one more thing that leads us to that miscalculation, and that is comparison. Beware when you compare. You know, back to these vineyard workers. If the guy who was hired at 6 a.m., by the way, the the day started at 6 a.m., the work day started at 6, if he had worked all day, received his denarius, and gone home and fed his family, he would have said it was a good day. I got work. Somebody hired me. I have bread. Let's eat. Let's go to bed. It's a good day. But the minute he sees somebody else not have to work a full day and get a full day's pay, that's when the grumbling begins. Do you know chronically unhappy people? Don't point them out, please, okay? (laughs) No elbows. But I do have some pictures of some of... No. uh. (laughs) I guarantee you that if you know a chronically unhappy, grumbling person, they spend a lot of time comparing their situation to other people's situation. And they they are convinced that it's unfair. Right? Let me give you three quick stories. One... Story of a missionary. This is back when missionaries had to travel by boats instead of planes. They went over to Africa and they served the Lord all their lives to a married couple. And they were old and broke and in poor health and they had to come back to America. They got on a ship. And as they're coming into the port, they realized that there was a politician on board. I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt. And um, as they're pulling into the port, there's a band there welcoming Teddy Roosevelt home and a big parade. And the old missionary, he, he became bitter. He said, you know, I've served my, my Lord all my life. I have nothing left. I'm broke. I have, I have a broken body. I don't get a homecoming band. And he was mad at God. Well, they got off the ship and they found a really low rent hotel to stay in, and he was grumbling. And um, his wife said, honey, why don't you just go into the room there and talk to God? And he goes into the room, and a few minutes later, he comes out with a big old smile on his face. She goes, what happened to you? I thought you were mad at God. He says, I was mad at God. She said, what would you tell him? I told him I was, I was upset that I serve him all my life, 
and I come back and I don't get a homecoming, but this politician gets a homecoming, it's unfair. And God spoke to me. She said, well, what did he say? He said, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Don't compare on such a limited plane as this life. That's only a small piece of the picture. We have eternity to look forward to. That's story number one. Story number two. I um, Maybe I've shared this before, but when I pastored up in Wisconsin... Um, big day was when we had our parking lot paved. We had a gravel parking lot, and then we raised enough money to actually have blacktop put down. And um, I remember it was a weekday. I'm sitting in my office, and I looked out the window, and they're dumping gravel and steam, and you know they're putting the, the parking lot together. And there's a guy standing right outside my window. He's got a shovel. He's got his overalls on. It's a hot day. And... Um, I looked out the window, and this was, it was a rough week. I don't know. There were problems in the church, and there's always this problem and this stress. And I looked out the window, and I saw the guy standing there with the shovel. I go, that must be nice. You punch in in the morning. You're told to rake this pile of gravel. You get your coffee break. You get your lunch break, and you go home, and you don't have to worry about anything. Must be nice. I was coveting his job. So, um, later on in the day, the phone rings, and I, when, I, when I talk on the phone, I pace. If you ever call me, you'll hear me puffing and huffing because I'm pacing. And I, I walk around the church. It was a cordless phone, and there was a couch out in the front, front foyer there, and I sat down, and I'm talking, and who walks in but the guy whose job I want? Right? He's going to go use the bathroom. I swear this is true. He walks by me, shakes his head, and he goes, must be nice. <laughs> Grass is always greener everywhere else, right? One more. Jesus is raised from the dead. And uh, the apostles, they had abandoned ship. They went back to Galilee. Galilee. They were fishing. So Jesus goes to the shore of Galilee, and, and they see him, and they make it back to shore, and Jesus restores Peter. You know, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times he says that. Then Peter and Jesus are walking down the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to Peter, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. What do you mean? Well, this is veiled talk for... Peter, when you're old, they will drag you away and crucify you. Peter was crucified. Peter knows what Jesus is saying. And after saying this, he said to him, Peter said to Jesus, or or Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Now, Peter is like, wow, that's going to hurt, right? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Who's that? John. Right? So Peter and Jesus are walking, and John's back here. John always wants to hear what's going on. What's going on? Um, so Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him. 
and had said, Lord, who is that? Uh, who is it that is going to betray you? So this is John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I mean, if I've got to be crucified, what about John? What's Jesus' answer? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, quit looking around at one another. Quit comparing yourself and convincing yourself that everybody else has it better than you. You have a path laid out to you, for you, by the Lord. Don't make it harder by going, well, I wish it was, I wish I had so-and-so's life, so-and-so's situation. You don't know the path God has them on. Now, let me, let me close with this thought. A lot of talk today uh, in the news about taxes and wages and pensions and retirement and social security and job packages and protests and so forth. And you know what? That's fine. That's fine. But before you spend your life thinking you got a raw deal when you compare your salary and your package and so forth to somebody else's, realize you could have been born 2,000 years ago as a common worker. I want you to see something. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning. So they started work at 6. So he's going to the marketplace to hire some workers 6 a.m. to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about, uh, going about the third hour, now the third hour is not 3 in the afternoon, uh, that's 9 a.m. Okay, starting time is six. Three hours later, that's the third hour. When he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, that's three, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, that's four o'clock, uh, or excuse me, five o'clock, he went out and found others standing. So then these hired at 5 o'clock, they go work an hour, and then it's payday. What do you notice about their work day? It's 12 hours. It's 12 hours. And how many days did they work a week? None of this mamby-pamby five-day work week. It was a six-day work week. What were their benefits? Nothing. What was their guarantee that they'd be hired the next day? Nothing. And they worked all day, and hopefully they had enough to go home and feed their family. Right? 12-hour work day, six days a week, no benefits, no guarantee of a job tomorrow, and hopefully enough to feed your family. We are blessed. Let's pray. Father, um, this parable puts it all in perspective. What we deserve is death and damnation. What we get 
is salvation because of the cross an abundant blessing father forgive us for taking grace for granted forgive us for grumbling forgive us for comparing and lord i pray that you would just inject into each one of us a new appreciation for breath and life and work and benefits TVs and cars and clothes, but most importantly, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.